Good deal. Hey, good to see you this morning. Everybody good? I tell you what, there is no name that is above the name of Jesus. And uh, one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have the privilege of doing that today, though. Amen? Jesus is Lord. Come on, you're going to have to help me today. Jesus is Lord. Amen? And we're here to worship Him and serve Him. Well, I'm doing this little series on trust. And last week we asked the question, can I trust God? And I, I hope that we adequately answered that question. The answer is yes. <laughs> Emphatically, yes. You can trust God. Our God is trustworthy. So I can trust God with my life. I can trust Him with my family, my finances, and my future. Because God is extremely trustworthy. Today we're going to continue this series on trust, which is the key to successful Christian living. And we're going to answer the question, can God trust me? Or more specifically, you're going to answer that question, can God trust me? You know, trust is really the most important element to any relationship. Wouldn't you agree with that? If, how many of you are married? How many of you have a significant other? All right. Okay. Here, here's the deal. Trust is the foundational element of that relationship. So in a home, that home, that marriage must be built on trust, right? I mean, you've got to be able to trust your spouse. Come on, you got to be able to. It, it's, it's all built on trust. Now, I understand sometimes that trust is broken or fractured or injured. And, and I, will, I will emphatically tell you that even if your marriage has suffered a, a catastrophic blow to it through adultery or infidelity, that trust issue can be rebuilt. It can happen again. It takes a whole lot of love and a whole lot of hard work, but you can build trust back into a broken marriage. Maybe, maybe I need a whole other sermon on that, all right? Hey, you know what? Trust is the key element when you're raising kids, isn't it? I mean, it's all built on trust. Do, do your kids trust you to be a good parent? And do you trust your kid to start releasing them out into the world? Okay, are you with me? And, and it's all built on trust, and, and, and they have to be able to earn your trust if you are going to give them the freedom that they want as a teenager, right? Yeah, that's another sermon. I've, I've got two sermons here I can work on that need to be preached. Uh, another uh, relationship that, that trust is at the very key is friendships. Okay, so I'm your friend, you're my friend, you're going through a hard time, and you come to me as a friend and share all of your problems. I mean, you just empty your gut and ask for my help, my advice, my prayer, because you have confidence in me, we're friends, all right? But then I betray that friendship, and I go out and tell everybody your problems. What's going to happen with our friendship? Well, it's going to fall apart. It's, it's going to go awry. Why? Because I have been untrustworthy, right? And you're not going to want to share anything. The only thing you might want to share with me is a knuckle sandwich, you know, right between my running lines. Why? Because it's all built on trust. Do I trust you and do you trust me? And it's the same way with God. Our relationship with God is built on trust. And so the question that God has for everyone today is this. Can I trust you? God, God's asking you that question. Can I trust you? In fact, we've got a story in the Bible about it. It's found in Luke chapter 16, 
verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to read it today out of the New Living Translation. I I read my Bible every morning out of the NLT, and I love to read stories like this parable out of the New Living Translation. So I have it for you today. Jesus told this story to his who? Disciples. That's very important to note. Jesus is not talking to scribes or Pharisees or the religious elite. He's talking to his followers. It is as if Jesus were in here today and he's saying, hey, I've got a story for you, my disciples. Here it is. There was a certain rich man, we'll call him the boss man, who had a manager or a steward or an employee handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager or the trustee was wasting all of his boss's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because I'm going to give you the ax. I am going to fire you. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Oh, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home once I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe the boss man? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. So he cut it in half. And how much do you owe my employer, he asked the next man. Well, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And I told the first service, this is the real reason I wanted to read out of the NLT. It called him a rascal, all right? It it called him, and he was a rascal. But here it is, the boss man is actually commending this man, not for his dishonesty, but for his craftiness, his shrewdness. And Jesus said, it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than we are as children of light. And that's just a fact of the matter. Here's the lesson. You use your worldly resources. You use what God has given you, the money you have, to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are all gone and time comes to an end, you will be welcomed into your eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things that are not your own. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and at the same time be enslaved to money. 
And you're sweating bullets right now thinking, oh, no, that's what he's going to talk about today, money. Well, why not? Why wouldn't I talk about money? Because you know what? This really is the acid test, and God knows it. It is the acid test of whether or not he can trust you. And guys, let me tell you, I'm not making any of this up. You, you need to go back and study your own, own Bible. Because out of the 38 parables that Jesus spoke in the Gospels, 16 of them had to do with money. Did you know that one out of 10 verses in the Gospels has to do with wealth and money and possessions? There are 500 verses that deal with faith, about 500 verses that deal with prayer. But there are over 2,000 verses that deal with wealth and money and possessions. Here's what I know. God knows what gets to us. And it's what we keep in our wallet, right? So let's look at what Jesus teaches us in this parable. This story about this foolish manager or this foolish steward. And there are three things that I want you to take note of in today's message. Are we ready? It, it really is going to be fun. Right? Okay. Learning new things is fun. And, and let me tell you, th this is not a negative thing. God wants to bless you. Now, I'm not one of these wealth and health preachers. You know that. You know that. God forbid you know that. But I do know this. God wants to bless you more than he's blessing you right now. The problem is we got a barrier that's set up in our own life. And, and we're going to abolish that barrier today. So point number one, the accountability of this foolish steward. It's found in verses 1 and 2. Jesus told this story to his, again, disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that this manager was wasting all of the boss man's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? You need to get your reports in order because you're out of here. I'm going to fire you. So when the owner came back, this unwise manager of the master's possessions was brought into accountability. Now, there were two reasons this manager was accountable to the master. And there are two reasons you and I are accountable to God. Oh, by the way, did I mention we are accountable to God? And there are two reasons why. Number one reason is because God's the owner of all things and we are his managers. And I need some amens out there, okay? God's the owner, we are the managers. The first reason that I am accountable to God is because everything that I have, everything that falls under my umbrella are gifts from God. I own none of them. I really don't. I brought nothing into this world, and you know what? When I leave, I'm going to take nothing out of this world. So therefore, technically, none of this stuff at 905 Cary Lane is Will Harmon's. Every bit of it is God's. And because God is the owner of all things, I am accountable to God. And by the way, let me just throw this in. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? Every good gift that you have is from the Lord. He is the owner. God has blessed me with everything. In fact, that very breath I just took in is a gift from God. My ability to walk and to work are gifts from God. Every possession that I have is a gift from God. God is the owner. 
Now, friends, this is the number one issue. And until we can settle this issue, we are always going to struggle with this problem of stewardship and ownership in our own lives. You see, here it is. If I believe that Will Harmon is the owner, then I am going to constantly be in conflict with God over the stuff that is in my life. But the moment I understand that God is the owner and I'm simply the manager, then all of a sudden that conflict disappears because I realize that everything I have is God's. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Right now, everything, my health, my life, my family, my possessions, it's not mine. God is the owner. I'm simply managing it for him. Okay? Let's do a little time out and take a pop quiz. How many of you can remember being in school and the teacher coming in and saying, okay, get your pen and paper out. We're going to take a pop quiz. I would literally vomit on my desk when I heard that because <laughs> I, I was never ready for pop quizzes. I hate them. But you know what? We're going to do a little pop quiz right now, and it, it's not going to hurt. Uh, it, here's the pop quiz. Last week, you went out and worked all week. You worked really hard. And it, at the end of the day on Friday, the boss man or boss lady, all right, gave you your check, and it was for $500. I just arbitrarily picked the number 500. You got paid 500 bucks. Uh, you took it to the bank. I don't know what you did with it, but you were paid 500 bucks. You come to church today, and when the offering comes, you've got to make a decision. How much of that 500 belongs to God? Y'all are so smart. You really... Now, some people would say not a dirty red cent of it is God's. I mean, God didn't go out last week and bust it. I'm the one that busted it. That check was wrote out to me. My name was on it. I put it in my bank. It's my money. It ain't God's. Others of you who are somewhat legalistic would come in here and say, well, uh, in my calculations, $50 is God's. Because that's 10%. God requires the tithe. So $50 is God. 450 is mine. Both of those answers are incorrect. They're inadequate. All of it belongs to God. It's all His. Are you, do, do we understand that? It's all His. It belo- if you die right now, how much of that 500 are you taking with you? Big zero, nothing. Therefore, it is not yours. It's God's. Now, God asks us to give Him 10% of his money back to him as an act of worship. And we worship God by giving him the tithe. But you know what? If we don't understand this issue of lordship, we're going to be in big trouble. Because God is Lord of everything. He is the owner, and I am the manager. So I am accountable because of that. I'm also accountable, number two, because the owner has certain expectations over the manager. In other words, when the master comes back, he wants to know what has been done with the possessions that he has placed within our care. And there are certain expectations, areas of expectations. In fact, God wants to know what we have done with five things he has placed within our care. What are these five things? The first one is ourselves. God wants to know what we've done with us. 
because the very start of this begins with the fact that we have dedicated or consecrated. We have given our very lives to God. Can I pay some of y'all to be ameners this morning? I'm, 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 about to, I'm ready to pay people to amen. It, that, that, but that is true. We, we must give our lives to God at the very foundation, at the very beginning. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12 verse 1? Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, you are to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship to him. So how do we worship God? By presenting our bodies on an altar of sacrifice as a living sacrifice to God. God, I'm giving you everything, and I'm holding nothing back for myself. Now, why would we do that? We do that, we do that because that's the way God has treated us. God gave everything. Jesus held nothing back on Calvary's cross, did he? Jesus died to save us from our sins. So God wants us to be accountable with what we are doing with our very lives. There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians 8, 5. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about this special offering he is asking all the churches to take up for the believers in Jerusalem who were in abject poverty. And as his example, he uses the church of Macedonia. And he's telling them, you know what, these people in Macedonia, they really are worse off than you people in Corinth. They don't have a whole lot, but they've already taken up their offering to help the believers in Jerusalem. And in verse 5 he says, they first gave themselves unto the Lord, and then they gave their offering. And as a preacher I'm saying, amen, that's the way it's supposed to be. We give ourselves to God, then we can freely give him everything else. So God wants to know what we've done with ourselves. And number two, God wants to know with what, what we've done with our possessions. There is this expectation of God of what we are going to do with what we have been given. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, In this same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Now, guys, this is, this is a concept that is hard for us to, to really get in our life, in our head, because the world tells us you get, get, get. You get everything you can, and you sit on it. You get everything you can, then you sit on the can. It's the way the little thing goes, you know. But, but God is saying, no. No, it, it, it's not yours, it's mine. You are to give me everything, or at least this. Listen to me, at least this. You should be willing to give me whatever I ask you for because it's not yours. It's mine. And I may need it for something else. So here's the acid test. If God asks you to give one of your possessions back to him and you are unwilling to give that back to God, then that thing has become an idol in your life. And you love that thing more than you love God. And make no mistake about it, we are accountable for these possessions. God wants to know what we've done with ourselves, our possession. Number three, he wants to know what we're doing with our time. And you're saying, my lens preacher, would you let off the accelerator here? You're kind of getting into my personal space. But you know what? 
the time we have is not our own. It really is a gift from God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 17. Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Some translations say, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Some translations say, you need to make every moment count. Why? Because God has given you, he's allotted you a certain amount of time. And you're held accountable for what you do with your time. Number four, God wants to know what you're doing with the spiritual gift he's given you. Now, here's the benefit of being a Christian. The moment you got saved, you were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does in your life when you receive Jesus is he gifts you with a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is something that you are divinely empowered to do within the church or the kingdom of God for the edification or the building up of the body of Christ. And every one of you who is a believer have been given a spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And so you're going to be held accountable for what you're doing with your spiritual gift. Are you just sitting in your pew, soaking everything up but not using your gift? If that is the case, you know what you're going to do, soaking stuff up? You're going to turn sour because God wants you to not only soak stuff up, but use the gift that he's given you to serve others. And make no mistake about it, we will be held accountable with what we do with our spiritual gifts. And then number five, God wants to know what you're doing with his gospel. That is the good news, the story of redemption, the story about Jesus saving us from our sins. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul says, God was pleased to trust us with his message. We did not speak to please people. We've spoken to please God. And so God gives you the good news to share with other people. What are you doing with the good news of the gospel? I mean, are are you just hiding it in your own heart and not letting your light shine? That that doesn't cut it. We, We are in this world. We are at this place and this time to make a significant impact in our world with the good news of the gospel. We are entrusted with the good news to share it with everyone we come in contact with. And you're going to be held accountable with what you do with the gospel. So I am accountable to God in each of these areas of my life. Now, let's make sure we get this straight before we move on. God's the owner. I'm the manager. God has given me certain gifts and possessions and time. And he has high expectations that I'm going to use all of these assets to build his kingdom. God's counting on me to do that. And as I use these things God has given me, I'm going to grow as a believer as well and become the person God has made me to be. Now, I found this little saying this week that kind of goes along with what I'm talking about to get the point across. Here's what it said. God put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of things. And right now, I'm so far behind, I'm never going to (laughs) die. Have you ever felt that way? 
We've got a lot to do, and the owner has certain expectations of us. Now, the second thing I want you to see is this. The assessment of the foolish steward. The, the moment that this unwise manager re, re, realized he was going to lose his job, hey, look what he says. Here's what he says. He said to himself, what in the world am I going to do? I, I translated that right there. That's Will's translation. What am I going to do? I'm about to get fired. My master's taking my job away. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. Wow. This this fellow realizes he's in big time trouble. Owners come home and he hasn't been doing his job. He's been lazy. He's been irresponsible. He's been out playing instead of working. He hadn't got the job done. Have you ever had that sick in the gut feeling just like this guy? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I've messed up. Uh-oh. I'm not ready. Uh-oh. The test is tomorrow. I haven't studied. Uh-oh. The term paper is due. I haven't begun. Uh-oh. My boss wants the report. I haven't even started it. Uh-oh. Have you ever been there? Well, some of us have. In our passage, this unwise manager realizes he is in deep, deep trouble. And so he assesses his situation. He realizes he is going to get fired and he has no income possible. He's too weak to dig ditches. He's too proud to beg. What in the world is he going to do? That brings us to point number three. He takes action. Here is the action of this foolish steward. Look at verses four through seven. By the way, are y'all still out there? It's about to get really good here, so hang in there, okay? Oh, I know how to ensure that I have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited all these people who owed money to his boss to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe? Guy said 800 gallons of olive oil. So what does he do? He takes the bill and he cuts it in half. Now you only owe 400. How much do you owe? He asked the next guy. A thousand bushels of wheat. He said, quickly, let's change that to only 800 bushels, buddy, pal, friend. There it is. That's how he dealt with it. He cut all the prices down. Now, here's the thing about this. Interesting to note that when this manager first came home, He didn't fire him on the spot. He didn't say, clean out your desk and you're out of here. No, he said to him, you're going to be fired. Settle your accounts. Now, that's important to notice. Do we got that? I'm going to give you time to settle your accounts. And in the settling of the accounts, you'll notice what he did. He sat down with all the people who owed his master money, and he started cutting down the amount that they owed. I, I, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe, maybe what he had done before was charge them an inflated price, and now he's just charging them what they really owe. That's a possibility. It could be that, that he's cutting out interest and only charging principal. Regardless of what he's doing, the bottom line is he's cutting the prices down. Why? He's making friends with these people so that when he loses his job, they're going to take care of him. Are you with me? And there are four lessons we can learn from this. And I'm just going to throw them out quick. Are you ready to pick them up? Four bones I'm going to throw to you. Four lessons we learned. The first lesson is this. We need to use our opportunities wisely. Right? 
Look at verses 8 and 9, probably the two hardest verses of this entire story. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, this is pretty unbelievable. The boss man is commending the guy he just fired. Not because he's dishonest. He commends him because he's crafty. He's shrewd. The verse says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. And you know that to be a fact. People of this world, are, they're cutting, they're, they're crafty, they're shrewd. When it comes to the bottom dollar, they don't care, man. Right? Christians care. We care. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Jesus is telling us this lesson. You use the things of this world, that filthy manna, that dirty money. You use the things of this world for other people. You give liberally and invest in heaven things so that when all of it's gone, you're going to have a heavenly reward waiting for you. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I guess, I guess the question here is why, why was this foolish steward commended after he was just fired? Well, it's simple. He was commended for the fact that once he realized there was a problem, he immediately took action to fix it. He may have been lazy before, but let me tell you, he's up and going now. He is going to do something because he realizes he's got a problem and he's going to fix his problem. Now, here's a very important lesson for us. Because there's some of you sitting out there today thinking to yourself, you know, Pastor, I've really never thought of it like this, but, but I see myself in this parable. I, I realize that God has given me certain gifts and possessions and opportunities, and I have not been using those for God's kingdom. And all of a sudden, a light has just come on in your mind, and you're saying to yourself, wow, maybe I'm this foolish manager in this story. Maybe God could write this story about me because I've been foolish with the things God has given to me. If that is the case, let me tell you, there's still hope. Here's the good news. God gives us a chance to rectify things just like the owner gave this man a chance to settle his accounts. Today, we've got an opportunity from God to settle the books and to make the accounts right. What am I saying? Well, here's a little poem that goes something like this that illustrates it. Though I can't go back and make a brand new start, my friend, anyone can start from now and make a brand new end. Okay? So whatever has happened up to this point today is behind us. We can't go back and fix that. But here's what you can do. You can write a brand new end to your own story. The Lord commended this man because he began to use his opportunity wisely. And that's what we need to do, guys. We need to start today and use the opportunities God has given us to make wise investments. We need to be in the business of investing in eternity. That's what all this is about. That's what verse 9 is about. 
You use what you have right now in this world to make eternal investments that are going to pay off when you get to heaven. Now, here, here's what a lot of people, I think, think or misthink. Some of you think that when you give money in the offering plate at the church, somehow or another, God vaporizes that money and sends it up to heaven, and it's going to go into this golden vault under your account. And when you die and you go to heaven, God is going to open that golden vault and give you all the money back that you've given to him. It is terrible. It doesn't work that way. So, so how does it work? How does, how does this eternal investment thing work then? Well, let, let me just say it like this. This past Wednesday night, on February the 12th, we had the New Life Singers from Randall University with us. One of the girls up here on the stage was our very own Elisa Seabold. She's a second-year student at Randall studying uh, uh, church music and, and wants to be involved in ministry with her life. And, and uh, Elisa, during the service, told us her story and what God is doing in her life. And on spring break, here in just about a month, Elisa is going with our international missions department and is going to spend her spring break in Guatemala teaching little children in this, uh, in this thing called Jungle Kids for Christ. It's a, it's a Christian organization. It's Ecuador. I said, I said Guatemala, Ecuador. They're down in the, in the, the mountains of Ecuador, and uh, Jungle Kids for Christ works with poor children to help give them an education and teach them about Jesus Christ. Elisa's going to go down there and spend her spring break teaching math skills to these little kids. And so she gave her testimony, and, and at the end of it, I came up and I said, Elisa, we love you, so proud of you, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to take up an offering for you, because I know this trip is expensive. How much do you owe for your trip? What do you still lack for your trip? And it was a, a little over $1,000 is what she owed. And if you, how many of y'all were here Wednesday night? Here's what I said to you. I can't tell you what to give, but God can. So you just ask God right now, Lord, what do I need to give to Elisa so that we can settle her account so she can go to help the jungle kids for Christ? And we prayed, took up an offering. She needed a little over $1,000. You gave over $1,200. Now just compute that for a second. Isn't that pretty cool? Because I didn't tell you how much to give. I can't do that. But God knew. And collectively, when we gave, she has enough not only to go, but she's got a couple hundred dollars for spending money that you gave her. Isn't that great? I mean, I'm just like, wow, fantastic. So here's how it works. You gave that money and probably didn't give another thought to it. I'll never see that money again, or there it goes. Now, let me tell you, when you get to heaven, an angel is not going to open a golden vault and say, here's your $100 that you gave on February the 12th, 2020, so Elisa could go to Ecuador. That ain't going to happen. But here's what could happen. A little girl from Ecuador could come up to you and say, you don't know me, but I want to thank you because... You gave $100 to Elisa Seabolt so she could go on a spring break trip and help the jungle kids for Christ. I'm one of the little girls that she taught math skills to. And as she was teaching me about math, she told me about Jesus. 
And I know Elisa's going to do this. We talked about it. She, she shared the plan of salvation with me, this little girl says. And I'm in heaven today because you gave. Do you see how it works? That, that's how we invest in eternity. Some of you, when you put your money in the offering plate, your tithe and offering, you, th you think to yourself, you know, all I'm doing is, is just paying the bills of the church. I'm giving my money so they can turn on these lights, so they can pay, pay that preacher. That, that's the wrong concept in thinking of what you're doing. No, when you put money in an offering plate, you are keeping the doors of this church open so that people who are unsaved and without hope and without Jesus can come into this room and receive grace and forgiveness and hope and have their life changed just like your life's been changed. That's why we give. And that's why you need to use your opportunities wisely. The second lesson we learn is this. Trust has got to be earned. Say that with me. Trust must be earned. One, two, three. Trust must be earned. Big question that God asks is this. Why, why would I give you more when you have misused what I've already given you? Look, look at verses 10 through 12. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in big things. But if you are dishonest in little things... You won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will you trust with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things that don't even belong to you? What God is saying is simply this. If you can't be faithful in a few things, why in the world would I give you more things? Now, that's pretty harsh, but that's what he's saying. You see, trust must be earned. And if I am misusing what I have been given, why in the world would the master give me more? And don't look at me with that blank stare on your face. You know this is true. How many of you have raised teenagers? Are you raising teenagers? Are you going to be raising teenagers? I mean, this is the way it works. Your teenager becomes 16, they turn 16, and whether you give them a car or they buy a car, you know what, that first night out, that first weekend out after turning 16, they're going to go, they're going to be driving, and here you are as the parent, you're setting boundaries, and you say, okay, curfew is 11 o'clock. I want you back in this house, safe and sound, that car not wrecked at 11 o'clock. And what are you doing? You're staying up. You're sitting in the living room watching the clock. And let's say your kid walks in at 10.59. What has your kid just done? Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. They've been dropping coins in their trust account because they obeyed you. They, they, they made curfew. And so the next week, you know, say, okay, 11 o'clock, they're home, 10.58. You're thinking, boy, I've done a great job raising this kid. They're trustworthy. You know what's going to happen over a course of time with them doing the trustworthy thing? You're going to extend their curfew. But if they don't come in until 1 o'clock in the morning when you've told them 11 o'clock, what are you going to do? 
Grounded. Man, I love that word, don't you? You're going to take those car keys away. So here's the question. How much can God trust you with this morning? Right now, how much can God trust you with? Can God trust you with money? Can God trust you with opportunities? Am I a trustworthy person with what I have right now? And and listen, friends, God measures my trustworthiness by how I manage what he has given me right now. And that leads me to point number three. Trust can be measured. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. Trust can be measured. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in big things. If you're dishonest in little things, you know, you're going to be dishonest with big things. If you can't be trusted with the things of this world, how in the world are you going to trust, be trusted with the things of heaven? So how does God measure trust? Very simple. God says, I measure trust by this very simple method. If you are trustworthy over a few things, I'm going to give you more things. That's the way God measures it. If God can trust you with a few things, he'll give you more things. If you can't be trusted with a few things or a little things, guess what? You're not going to get any more. You say, well, that sure is mean of God. Aren't, I'm entitled to it. No, you're not. No, you're not. God doesn't measure trust based on what you're going to do or what you plan on doing or what you hope to do. God measures trust with what you have right now. That's important to understand right now. Have you heard about the preacher who was trying to teach his congregation about this trust issue? He pastored out in the country. All of his people, parishioners, were farmers. And so he went to this farmer's house on, on Monday. He said, he said, Brother Farmer, let me ask you. If, if God gave you 100 cows, would you give 50 of them back to the Lord? Oh, yes, preacher, you know I would. Okay, if God gave you 100 horses, would you give 50 of them back to the Lord? Oh, preacher, hallelujah, you know I would. And he said, how about this, Brother Farmer? If you had two hogs, would you give one of them back to God? He said, no, preacher, that ain't fair. You know I got two hogs. You see, up to that point, what he had been trying to do is snow God. He had been trying to pull the wool over God's eyes. You know what? We do the same thing, but it doesn't work. Why? Because trust can be measured. And that brings me to number four, fourth lesson. We need to be totally devoted to God. Because when we're devoted to God, all the rest of this is going to be easy. When we've given God our heart our soul, our life, our minds, everything. We've held nothing back. We've given God our time, our talent, and our treasure. The rest of this is easy. Here's what he says in verse number 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other. He'll be devoted to the one. He'll despise the other. You can't serve both God and at the same time be devoted to money. It doesn't work. It's either God... Or it's money. So i got to ask, where where are you in that equation? And what are you going to do with what you got? Right now, what are you going to do with what you have right now? I've been pastoring for 36 years, and I've I've literally had a number of people, I don't know, maybe a dozen people up to this point say something like this to me. Literally, people have said this. Preacher, if I ever get a million dollars, I'm going to give every bit of it to the church. I've had people say that to me. 
And I haven't said it back to them, but I'm thinking in my head, you lying dog, you ain't either because you don't even tithe, man. (laughs) Now that's awful mean-spirited of your pastor to think that. But it's the truth, all right? You know? So, So here's the deal. If you can't trust God by giving him 10% right now, there ain't no way in the world you're going to give him 100% next year. It ain't going to happen. You see, the whole issue is this. Am I trustworthy with what I have right now? Because if you're not trustworthy with what you're doing with God's stuff right now, how in the world's God going to give you something else? And and here it is. I've been here all week thinking about this. I I wonder how many blessings we collectively are missing out on because we're seated here in our pews waiting for some time, somewhere, someday under the rainbow. Why would the master give me more if I'm misusing what he's already given me? And again, you know me, I've been here 22 years, I don't preach health and wealth, I don't. But I know that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And I know this about the gospel, God wants to bless us a whole lot more than probably he's able to. Why? Because we are not trustworthy with what he's already given us. And that is an issue that you need to settle with God. So here's the invitation. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's where it begins. You need to come to the altar and give him everything, holding nothing back for yourself. You need to accept his gift of salvation and trust Jesus as Savior of your life today. That's the most important thing, foundational. Then for the rest of us, we we need to settle this issue of trustworthiness. So you need to gather up all the stuff of your life And you need to bring it down to the altar today and lay it before God and say, Lord, I'm presenting my life and my stuff to you. Lord, I want to be trustworthy. I want to be that person that you can count on, that you know I'm going to love you, Lord, and trust you, and you can count on me. So would you do that today? Just bring your body, bring your life, bring your stuff, and lay it before the Lord on this altar of living sacrifice.